Lev Jalimanohan, Bob as his friends know him, has had an interesting career as a lawyer. He began working as one of the pioneer legal staff of the Philippine Competition Commission. There, he would deal with the introduction of the competition law paradigm into the Philippine legal system. Afterwards, he would walk the halls of power as a lawyer working in the office of the president and go on to leave the public service to enter the private practice. Gob will share the insights he has garnered from his practice of the law in these different contexts. I do hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Gob, welcome to my podcast. Hi, Rami. Thanks for having me. Okay, uh, before we jump into the podcast, you mind introducing yourself for the listeners very quickly? Sure. Uh, I'm Gob. I'm a, well, I used to be a, a law, uh, you know, lawyer in a firm working on mostly corporate stuff, special projects, that sort of thing. Also spent time in the government. Uh, but now mainly I work in environmental advocacy. Yeah, and, and you spent specifically, your time in government was with which agencies? Uh, the Philippine Competition Commission and the Office of the President. Uh, which president? Uh, the current one. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, Rodrigo Roa Duterte for the listeners. <laughs> so, uh, and that should be very interesting once we get to it. Um, so, there's a lot to unpack in terms of your professional journey, but I think one of the things that I would like to touch on first is the Philippine Competition Commission. What exactly is the Philippine Competition Commission? Oh, okay. So, it's a it's a regulatory agency that ensures free and fair competition in the Philippines. So competition in the sense of you know, protecting consumer welfare, ensuring there are no monopolies, mm-hmm. or monopolistic practices, or anti-competitive agreements that mm-hmm. are harmful for consumers. Mm-hmm. So like working backwards, like if we're trying to operate first from a status quo, we assume that the Philippine Competition Commission was created in response to a status quo. What is the status quo of the Philippines? Well, mm, well, uh, hmm. so it's a, it's a bit difficult to answer. Right. Uh, the origins was really, because we were, the, the origins of the, you know, the act, and of course, eventually the commission, was really because we were one of the few countries left that didn't have a com- competition commission mm-hmm. or even a competition statute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very discouraging for you know foreign investors. So that was a key motivation. Then of course, so that that that's the uh, you know that's the broad business environment case where uh, the competition yeah, exists. Yeah. yeah, but I guess, but more specifically, and also I guess more obviously, uh, you only need to look at the number of you know conglomerates and you know the, the last names that own those conglomerates to to realize. How, how how the that there's a really a high level of consolidation mm. in, in Philippine business. Mm. So you have mega corporations that have hands in pretty much every pie in every industry. Mm. So what is what is the extent of the power? Like considering specifically that the Philippine Competition Commission is created to address what is essentially a very large structural problem that exists in the Philippines in terms of the economic arrangement of our society. Uh, what powers does it have at its disposable disposal to be able to regulate such a difficult problem? Mm, again, the complicated question with a complicated answer. How do I simplify? Uh, well, in a word, the powers are very, you know, the powers are broad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the powers are broad. So depends on what kind of regulatory, what kind of conduct. Uh you know, is, is the subject of the inquiry 
So for instance, when you talk about broadly speaking, you have in the on the you know in regulatory side of things, broadly speaking, you have two general, let's say, uh, aspects. So you have on one hand enforcement, competition enforcement. So in competition enforcement, it's really about dealing with uh, anti-competitive anti conduct in general. So price setting, uh, price fixing, price manipulation, um, market partitioning, you know, P, uh, big corporations agreeing that, oh, say to, area na to, I won't compete with you there as long as akin area na to, you won't compete with me here. So mm -hmm. something like that. So in terms of that, essentially the power, the species is the power to investigate and cause the prosecution, no, mm -hmm. of, of violators. I say cause the prosecution because ultimately, when you talk about those kinds of things, they're criminal violations. So the PCC has to bring them to the DOJ. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. So is that is that like a limitation on the power? And like, what other limits exist on the power of the PCC? Like, what are things that obviously, or, or rather? What are things that might, at first blush, look like they're the business of the Philippine Competition Commission, but are in truth and in fact probably the business of other agencies? Mm. Wait, there again. There's a. Can I just go back, circle back? Because there's a second aspect. Mm. I think that we can. I'll, I'll go to that. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Just go back to the original question. The second aspect is, uh, you know, looking at. Mergers and acquisitions, reviewing mergers and acquisitions. So any attempt to merge, consolidate, or acquire is subject to review by the PCC, either moto proprio or if you breach the thresholds, you there's a compulsory notification requirement. Mm -hmm. And so you have to bring to the attention of the PCC before you can execute your merger or acquisition. Mm -hmm. right, I think the current figures are six around six billion and two billion. Pesos. Pesos. So six billion. Yeah, uh, you can check. I mean, I don't. I don't want to get too technical, but there you have. To, those are the thresholds, and if you breach those thresholds, you have to notify the PCC. But going to your second question, what things uh, seem like they're at the PCC but uh, are not? Hmm. Again, not an easy question to answer. Or, or well, I guess I, I phrased the question quite badly. Like, generally speaking, like my question speaks to more, what are the limitations, right? Because essentially what we're trying All to right. do is like, so in the US, for example, there was uh, that old case of Standard Oil, where yeah, yeah, actually yeah. the competition authority in the US ordered the breaking up, mm -hmm. right? And to my understanding, with my very basic understanding, that is not something that the PCC can no, do. Yeah, the PCC can do that. So the PCC can order the breakup of yes, the PCC can individual corporations. Can nullify agreements. Can order, yeah, uh, the breaking of a corporation if it's a, it's a, if it's hyper consolidated. Mm, so why haven't they ordered SM and Ayala to? <laughs> oh, all right. Oh, because there's a well, two things. There are two elements to that. So there's the, you know, you, you'll understand this as a lawyer. So the first element is really, yeah, as a practical matter, you have to build your case, mm -hmm. right? So and it's not easy to build a case when you're dealing with conglomerates, mm -hmm. right? So there's that. And you know, when you're building and when you're building a competition case, it's not a simple matter of oh, these are the elements. You know, this this particular conduct 
you know, check all the elements, right? Uh, you, like your basic criminal law. It's not that simple. A lot of it, like at the core of any competition case, is really proving the lessening of competition economically. Mm. So you have to build, you know, you have, really have to put in the research. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it, uh, a lot of times, though, there were the, the PCC would do a lot of, you know, uh, experiments, behavioral experiments to see if they really, if consumers react in a particular way. So we had we had we had behavioral economists. So the PCC has behavioral economists in all, <laughs> on uh, you know in its employ, and so there's a lot of that because it's a, it's a it's a complicated thing to really build up a good competition law case. The second element is there's also a balance that has to be struck because entering into a merger is not you know it's not illegal per se, right? And you don't really want to discourage. You know, mergers that could actually have efficiency justifications, mm-hmm. for instance, like uh, mergers that will actually improve productivity mm-hmm. uh, in certain cases, even, you know, it, it'll have a net positive effect on consumer welfare. So you have to balance that. You also don't want to discourage, you know, expansion and investments. Mm-hmm. So you can't overregulate. You have to, you know, as a, as a, as a regulator, the PCC has to always toe that line between protecting consumers while at the same time not, you know, overstretching itself to the point where it's now discouraging. Uh, the very thing it hopes to help foster. Yeah, which is, you know, economic development. Mm. So, uh, essentially, you could say we're, we're coming from this... Uh, context in which competition is kind of stagnating because you have the consolidation of capital in the hands of a few right and specific to the philippines it is in the hands of a few members of very specific families so on the whole though do you view that as a problem or like like i mean this is more philosophical now really the question uh it it again it it has a lot to do with you know the answer I just gave right uh I don't think I could honestly say that it's overall a problem, right? Like, or like that it's that clearly a problem, mm-hmm. right? Because there are certain industries, for instance, that you know, when I was when I was at the commission, uh, there were certain industries where, on its face, you'd think, "Oh, there's probably something going on here," mm-hmm. right? And then you do all the studies that you. you the commission does its investigation. This investigation lasts like a year, mm. uh, and it turns out there it, it isn't. It turns out this industry isn't consolidated, or that if it is, there is there are you know economic justifications for it. So it's never that straightforward. So I I can't I can't make a blanket statement that it's definitely bad, mm-hmm. um, but. All in all, what I will say is we could benefit from, you know, uh, a, a growth in SMEs, mm-hmm. right? And 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 I and, and think one factor. It's not the only factor. I need to emphasize that uh, one factor, of course, that prevents that growth is the fact that whenever you try to, you know, you, you become large enough, you'll just get gobbled up. Mm-hmm. By the big players, 
So so there has to be from a maybe it's not just a regulatory maybe it's not regulatory action that's necessary. There's there should probably also be policy changes. Mm. Right? Which the PCC is involved in the man. Uh to really ensure the growth of SMEs. <laughs> So I think that's one. I mean, that's a very small. That's that's one point. Uh, I could go on for hours about this, but I think I'll, yeah, that's what I'll know for now. Uh-huh. Well, uh, I'm sorry. Last thing, I want to emphasize: I uh, I am not claiming to be an expert in competition law. Uh, I, I'll say I'm just familiar with it because I did spend time with the commission, but I would not call myself a competition lawyer at all. Yeah, and just like any good lawyer, he respond. He make sure to sneak his good disclaimer in. <laughs> Uh, but just so I, I got it in at some point, like I'll share first, like a little anecdote, <laughs> and uh, second, like a little facts for the listener. So the first one is this little anecdote. I was in a meeting with a uh, with regard to, like a gender and social policy committee in in the business organization that I'm currently affiliated with, Phil Export, and uh, you know, <laughs> I joke that oh, we need. We need representation in Congress, and we should probably make a party list. And then uh, the head of advocacy kind of told me, like, attorney Pananamanto, like, how will this be? Because, you know, you're, you can't roll up as a marginalized person in your BMW. And I, I had to, like, correct her very quickly. It's like, no, we do not have a BMW. I drive a Toyota, just like most people do in the Philippines. And that takes me to my next point. That Actually, that's something people like to forget about, the structure of our economy. You know, like, people look at, at the Ayalas and the SMs, and they think that this is what the Philippine economy is composed of. But actually, by number, like, if you're counting the number of entities that exist in the Philippines, 99%. Of all the business entities that exist in the Philippines are MSMEs. These are the, the, the businesses that do not have large legal departments, do not have 100-person HR departments to be able to deal with uh, the regulation that might come down from the national government. And so you cannot structure your economy to be able to respond to the needs of these large corporations because those corporations, they need government eyes on them. They need entities like the Philippine Competition Commission, like with their eyes trained on them to be able to regulate them. But you cannot structure your economy for just those entities. You need to be able to respond intelligently to the needs of even those smaller entities. Yeah, totally agree. (laughs) Uh, And... Now that we've touched upon uh, your stint in the Philippine Competition Commission, this is probably the more interesting thing that I would like to get to. Uh, you worked in the office of the president. What, what was that like? Yeah, it was difficult and interesting. Okay. Would you care to elaborate? Uh, <clears throat> well, look, I mean, the key, the key thing, uh, the key... Uh, the, all right, so yeah, let, let me break this down. So let's start with difficult. All right, so it was difficult in two ways. It was difficult because the nature of the work isn't purely legal, right? Uh, so when you're all, when you're working in the OP, uh, and of course I was originally hired as you know for for as a lawyer, so to provide legal expertise and that sort of thing. But um, but you will off, uh, we often found that you know optimal solutions to things aren't purely legal and i don't mean to say uh, that some solutions are illegal right not 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 in that sense i mean in that in the sense that it can't just be legal 
mm-hmm. you know, there are political and practical aspects to how you resolve a problem. Mm-hmm. So you can't really come in as just a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You also have to come in as a manager, mm-hmm. as an operator even. And in, 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 in probably some cases, uh, a really good negotiator, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, uh, the, you know, when, when you're in the OP, you have to take, you have to take into account everything, mm-hmm. right? So, for instance, if you're, if you're an agency and you represent an agency, your main concern is whatever your mandate is. Right. So let's concrete example. Let's say you're the DTI. Right. So if you're there, if you're in a meeting, you're there to talk about what benefits, you know, trade and industry. If you're, uh, on the other hand, if you're, you know, like the DOH, you're there to talk about what's beneficial for public health. When you're the OP, you don't have that luxury. You have to find a way to reconcile those two points. And very often, those two points are equally important. So how do you find the solution? right? And, and it's easy to say that, oh, you find the middle ground. The thing is, the middle ground isn't always easy to find in real life, right? especially when operating with something as huge as a national government. Right? And sometimes the middle ground isn't even the best solution. Because you end up with a solution that no, no one's happy about that doesn't help anyone, right? Because you take away a bit from here, take away a bit from here, you end up with a solution that's half baked, mm. right? So, again, so it's not as simple as saying, oh, you just find the middle ground. No, sometimes you make tough decisions, you have to pick one over the other, and then you have to suffer the consequences of being attacked in the media. Mm. <laughs> so I, ha- I, I, I can think of, obviously I can think of a lot of examples, but a lot of them I can't really discuss. But I think you can imagine what kinds of decisions uh, would would be like that. So, for instance, a pandemic, but the choice between opening up and you know, uh, in, you know, having people qu- continue to stay in quarantine, right? Or, or uh, what do you call it? these restrictions? Mm-hmm. So the restrictions were just opening up debate. If you're from the business sector, it's easy to say, oh, we should open up. Mm-hmm. If you're for the health sector, it's easy to say, oh, we shouldn't, mm-hmm. right? Our analysis says, no, we really shouldn't yet, right? But, like, but you're only talking from one perspective, mm-hmm. right? But when you're in the OP, you have to look at those. You see that they both have good points, and then you have to kind of make a decision and a recommendation. Mm-hmm. So that is, it's difficult. It's really difficult in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other level to the difficulty is... This, I think, is something, you know, uh, listeners, you know, you probably would expect. The other difficulty is, is, I think, more obvious. It's the more obvious challenge of, being, of working in government is that there's always someone tugging at your sleeve. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's not always bad, mind you. It's not always corrupt, <laughs> uh, although sometimes it is. Uh, but there's always someone tugging at your sleeve. So there's always someone who needs something somewhere in the country. Mm-hmm. And... Deciding who gets what with a limit with limited resources is is a challenge. Mm. Uh, my only comfort was obviously I'm not the president. I never had to make the final decision, but it is it was always still difficult. You know, trying to come up with a recommendation that you know that 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 wouldn't harm anyone. Mm. 
and actually that's kind of the thing that's really hard to impart like because as a lawyer you kind of get this incredible understanding with the way the world actually works with the way the with the way that the government is not actually this person that provides opportunities but is really more someone who sits in the middle right and really makes decisions that would direct resources one way or the other and with no clear intention or no clear indication rather of what the right choice might actually be yeah. right and like one 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 really uh, important example that i like to talk up in my private conversation is you know uh, there was that whole brouhaha with harry rocky recently right where he was being called out by doctors mm-hmm. right because uh and it was recorded a, a private meeting was recorded and the videotaping of that recording got out where he uh intemperately expressed his opinion of the doctor's suggestion that the lockdown continue right and to my mind knowing the relative position of government right that you often have to make these calls right and you honestly have very good reasons one way or the other and then to be demonized in the media like to understand that that is the burden that someone implicitly takes on right and as divisive of a figure as Harry Roque is and of course this is not me adopting his every decision he's made or every statement he's made with regard to that one particular instance i kind of got where he was coming from because personally as a business owner i understand that yes there is that definite desire to open up the economy you know gob you actually brought up the relationship of the president to the media so do you mind like breaking down a little bit like the way that politics and media particularly interact with each other oh i can uh uh i can't really answer that you can't really answer that because uh we uh our office in particular we were we were prohibited from talking to media talking to the media okay that, that was totally harry rocky's job Okay, and they were they're they're, they're a separate office. So mm-hmm. as far as our office was concerned, we had the, uh, for lack of a better term, luxury mm-hmm. of not having to think about that. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't talk to the media. We were also the, protected from the media mm-hmm. in this. You know, so we remained anonymous enough. <laughs> Or isolated enough from the from from the media, so the media would only ever see the final decision mm-hmm. and respond to that, or would only ever you know interact directly with Harry Roque. So, relationship with the media, um, I hesitate to give an opinion mm-hmm. since that wasn't something I had to deal with. Okay, thankfully, mm-hmm. right, considering right, the that, state of our media, right. but and that that speaks to another. Um, aspect of government also i think like the compartmentalization of the different functions of government and and how terribly not terribly but how they are actually very 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 compartmentalized so even something like say for example talking to the press like no there's a different office for that mm-hmm. right and so actually something that i particularly don't like in the discourse that i have with my friends is when i re- when we talk about something that Harry Roque might say right they say oh you know i don't like Harry Roque because of he said this thing and i'm saying and i i kind of tell them that you like just playing devil's advocate i i inform them that you know he's the presidential spokesperson like he's not speaking for himself mm-hmm. he's defending the actions of the national government he pretty much doesn't have a choice right like the, he doesn't the opinion he needs to give is give, you know 
Yeah. Is, is quote unquote given to him. <laughs> like he has to defend the position. That's true. Yeah. And, and people don't often realize that. They think that, oh, Harry Rock is just you know, the president's bro. And he's saying, no, no, he's speaking as the president, right? Like that's his job. And people don't understand the nuance of that sometimes. Then they ascribe a lot of hate to the man himself, which is strange. Right? And maybe there are some objectionable things, right? Maybe there are some thing, objectionable, thing, objectionable things with the man, right? But the past years, right, a lot of the flack that Harry Rocky has gotten has been his defense of the government, which is his job, exactly. right? Every presidential spokesperson would have to do that. All right. I just want to add something to that. Um, so n- this is not to defend the admin. I am very much aware of the, you know, the failures, just to be clear, <laughs> but uh, without mentioning names, you know, without name dropping anyone, I will say though that a lot of the people that the public have come to hate are actually very reasonable in private, right? But obviously they can't, you know. Uh, a lot of them are alter egos. A lot of them, well, for instance, uh, we were. A lot of them are confidential appointees, so. Publicly, they, they, they have to take a stand in defense of the government because that's their job, right? But I will say that a lot of the people that the public have come to hate in private are very reasonable people who understand that there are failures. <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, like, uh, like any person would acknowledge, right? Especially if they see it in the media themselves being portrayed, like... Mm. They will see immediately. These are the ways that we are being portrayed, and these are the problems. And they will acknowledge those problems. They will not do so publicly because, again, we'll talk a bit about the way that these people exist at the pleasure. Do you mind expounding at, on that specific word, at the pleasure of the president? Well, that means, uh, you know, their the, the alter egos, and, and, you know, the president can dismiss, can dismiss them on a whim. Yeah. Right. So, but but it's I think it's it's not so that kind of makes it sound like they're afraid to lose their jobs. I wouldn't I wouldn't put it that way. It's more of they understand that they have a job to do, mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna say everyone working in government has pure intentions. That that would be absurd, mm-hmm. right? Certainly, uh, you people would be right to think that there are a lot of people who are there for selfish reasons. Uh, but I will say that there are, uh, in, in, in my time uh, working in the government, that there are quite a few people who are actually there because, uh, you know, they give a damn. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, there's always that negotiation that, you know, well, I need to, you know, you need to stay in the job to actually keep helping. Yeah. Right. And one of the concessions is probably that if, even if you're the department which is performing a function completely unrelated to what might be controversial at that moment, you own that action mm-hmm. because if you break rank and tell people that, hey, uh, you know, I don't agree with what my fellow secretary said, well, it's going to make for a very awkward cabinet meeting the following right. day. And it's gonna, you're, it, the, the government is going to look very disorganized. So that no, one ben- no one benefits from that. Yes. But I will add one thing, if, if I may. Um, the, the funny thing, the one thing I've always found strange, like, especially when I was still there, was, you know, when people say, like, why, what are you doing there, right? The most basic question I, I got a lot, what are, you, what are you even doing there? What are you working, what are you doing working for that guy? Well, two things, right? First, I don't work for the 
like uh, we we often say we all we would often say no in, in in the office we work for the office not the person mm-hmm. and a lot of the people I worked with were there have been there for three administrations right so they, they they're there they serve the office but the second thing is you know even if we assume that I work for him even if I accept that right now okay I do I do work for the president here's the thing um. This is, you know, when you work for the president, what do you do when the things get difficult? Do you just quit? <laughs> work, you know, when you're working for the president, when you're working for the, the embodiment, guy, yeah, <laughs> the guy that runs things, yeah, right. It's not the same as, you know, working for you're in you're in a you're, I don't know, you're something like Jollibee. Your boss is crazy, so you quit, right? You you're in. I don't know, whatever, some bank, your boss is crazy, so you leave, mm-hmm. right? Or the R's are difficult, so you leave. When you're working for the, for, when you're working for the government, when you're working for the president, quitting, I mean, is a betrayal. Yeah. Right? I mean, there, there's a level of betrayal to it, and I think that's something people don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, don't, you know, don't give people credit for, you know, people in government. Now, and I say this, mind you, knowing full well that not every, like, you know, that you are certainly not wrong to think that there are people in government that are corrupt. Fine, but there, all I'm saying is there are people who are actually there for good intent with good intentions, and they can't quit because quitting is just you know abandoning the country to people you don't trust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the work look like on that level that bird's eye view where resolving even differences between competing governmental departments is an issue right what kind of and this is really going back to again to like the role of a lawyer in such a large organization like the government what does that look like what does it entail uh sorry just to make sure i'm understanding the question you mean like at a a practical level at a day-to-day level yeah does that look like yeah oh uh, because you know people have this notion that the gov- that uh, the president you know has his hand on a button which lowers uh, gas prices and he's just refusing not to press it you know people have that simplistic notion and let's let's dispel that notion by your answer hopefully yeah or on a day-to-day level a hell lot of meetings like a lot of meetings meeting with everyone from civil society to the private sector to different government agencies, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of that. There's just a hell lot of that, and trying to, you know, mediate in in meetings where two agencies and someone from business and someone from civil society are all fighting, and it's a four cornered fight. <laughs> so there, there's a lot of meetings. Then there's also a lot of sitting in your office. Trying to get all, like, trying to go over all the paperwork that all these competing interests, you know, all these competing groups with competing interests have, have submitted to you or to your to the office in general, and and trying to come up with an answer that is legally correct, but also practical, right? Practical and economically feasible. And I will admit that there were many times that it you know that was practically impossible to find 
So you just try your best to make sure that whatever you know, whatever is whatever EO or order or act is is you know is, is done is is legal and constitutional. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so on a day to day level, a lot of meetings and a lot, but also a lot of sitting in your office going through literally piles of paperwork mm-hmm. with 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 uh, with the hundreds of graphs <laughs> on data and statistics and trying to understand like okay who has the better point here or what what recommendation will be you know will will help more people and, and that's always the and i guess i could to uh, to briefly describe it that's always the brutal cal- there was always a brutal calculus that we you know you had to do like deciding who gets something now while knowing that that giving that to someone is probably going to take it away from someone else so it will be like something as it could be as like as simple as you know you give let's say teachers benefits now but you'll probably take that away from nurses mm-hmm. so someone loses Every time you give someone some kind of uh, of help or perk, was in your entire time there in the office of the president, was it always a zero sum game, or are there instances where there wasn't something that was an absolute win for society? Could you even name one instance, or no? No, no, I can't honestly say that there was ever a time or ever any recommendation we made that was definitely. 100% benefited everyone. <laughs> Beneficial to everyone. And, and that should speak to the difficulty of the job, no? Uh, so, now, let, let's let's wind back a bit to, you know, your job as a lawyer. So, you poured over paperwork. You poured over the submissions from these special interest groups. What kind of discretion? Because people like to ascribe, like, a mythical status to lawyers in government. That mm-hmm. somehow, our level of discretion is somehow wider than people who are lay people but also working in government. So what discretion did you have when you were working in the office of the president? Mm. In terms of... Oh, that's, that's actually tricky. Okay. Um, so I, mm, on a day-to-day basis, I was largely free to, you know, we were our office in general, not well, not me personally, our office in general, was largely free to try to strategize how to, you know, what the best way to solve a problem is. Um, but at the same time, uh, me as a personal level, and anything I made was a recommendation, right? Anything I made, any, 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 any recommendation I made was subject to the approval of like 10 other people mm-hmm. up the chain. So personally, not a whole lot of power. <laughs> I mean, it, it's more of uh, it's essentially what our job was. After the agencies, once it arrives in the OP, we had the first crack at it. So, um, we had we had the first look at the problem and tried. To, we had we had the first uh, glance and and the first attempt at trying to come up with a solution. Um, while we're doing that, essentially, uh, your basic limitation is it has to be legal. That was always clear in the office. You could never recommend anything that you know that 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 that's going to be unconstitutional or going to break the law, mm. right? And the funny thing is, the way that often comes, uh, the way that o- often manifests is with with a, with requirements that make the whole process longer. So that's the funny thing. It's always a funny thing we encounter when people complain. Na, you know, standard complaint with government. Maybe an antagal tagal. 
tagal naman mag-approve ng OP, tagal naman gawin nito ng OP. Well, uh, and a lot of a lot of that what, what people don't realize is because that's we're ma- that's because we're making sure that what we're doing here is legal. That's why we're asking you for additional stuff mm-hmm. to, to justify that uh, to justify a request and to justify any decision to give it to you to grant you that request, right? Uh, so free to strategize, but also naturally limited by what's legal. That was always clear, and then also there were political considerations. Mm-hmm. Now. Our office specifically was, you know, freed from that, right? So our specific task was to look at it uh, as lawyers, All right? But then a decision would go up, and then when you see the final output, you'll see that there were straight changes because there were political considerations made by people who, who are, you know, or there were certain decisions made that were way above my pay grade. Yeah. So there was that, there was always that uh, limitation to what we could do. Mm-hmm. But I will say there were there were a lot of times, naman, uh, you know, what we recommended was what came out. Mm-hmm. So, I guess because that's that's actually one of the things that's really hard to articulate, and I think you did it really well. That there is actually a lot of brain power that goes into uh, this governmental action, and so that that speaks to two points. First, that uh, you know, this popular misconception that exists that our government permits uh, corruption, misfeasance. Mm-hmm. And other abuses of authority to occur, that is not true, right? Like a lot of brain power goes into actually making things legal, right? Mm-hmm. Whether or not it's practical or easy to interface with, that's an entire, entirely different yeah. matter, okay. right? But as to specifically how, easy, how, uh, how the government can be used for corrupt ends, it's very difficult. Very, mm-hmm. very difficult. And I guess the second point is that, you know, the president is a creature of laws, not, not the president himself. Right, but the office of the president, yeah, the office, right. right? He covered in restraints. Although you know, arguably the president is still terribly powerful when yes. weighed against Very. the other two branches, mm-hmm. right? But he is still absolutely covered in restrictions, mm-hmm. right? Um, whether or not those restrictions are enough to chain the current occupant of Malacanang. Uh, to an extent that's sufficient with our understanding of political science and the way we would like to have our society structured, that is an entirely different matter. As, but as to whether or not he is covered in restrictions, he absolutely is. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, but you're right, though. Um, so there is a lot of work put into trying to make things legal. At least, you know, there are offices that are dead, you know, that whose sole job is to do that. But... Uh, now, are there failures? Because I, I don't want to sound like an apologist here, but are there failures? Certainly, I'll be the first to admit that. Right? There are failures. Uh, and, and we could certainly do a whole lot better. I will openly admit that. But yeah, there. It, it's not as simple as, oh, my, my, there's a bad decision. I'm being bobo naman. No, no, there's usually a lot more going on there than, than, than people realize. And by the time it's portrayed and you know, and the media adds its spin to it, that's usually not you know a lot of that background is already left out. So now uh, you know we're talking about your participation in uh, the office of the president and the fact that your action had to be approved by about ten people up higher up in the chain. Um, what is for you like looking? at the system that you were actively engaged in, a particular pain point when it, come, when it came to p- 
positive policy recommendations? Like what was something that actively stood away, stood in the way of most good things that you tried to accomplish given your position? Oh, political interests. Uh, political and personal interests. That was almost always like you came up with in you came up with a solution that you worked hard on. And I often didn't do this alone, right? It would, it would be a team of, of lawyers. We, came, we, we did our best, looked at everything, came up with a fair and reasonable solution. And then someone with, you know... With actual pull. Yeah, someone with pull wants something and he gets his way. So that was always frustrating. Nah. Anyway. But in... But- uh, is there a way to remedy that? You think, or is that just inherent to the system? Ah, uh, there are certainly remedies, right? But uh, I mean, the, and the, if you think about it, the remedies exist. I mean, our laws on graft and corruption are pretty broad, right? So the remedies do exist. Now, how well they're enforced is a totally different matter, right? And and of course, there's advocates would argue, like anti-corruption advocates would argue that they're not well enforced. Um, but I think a key, but I, I I do agree with you though. I think I think my main answer is that I agree with you that it's also inherent in the system, because when you have a system where a single person has the power to make so many decisions, right? Uh, then it's own it, a natural consequence is really for powerful players to try to infl- you know to try to pull their weight right and to influence things that would in ways that would benefit them and that happens a lot right uh what's the what's the problem i i don't think it's unique to the philippines though i mean that's that's also a problem in like even a big and rich democracy like the united states right i mean you have lobbyists in congress so, uh, you have super PACs campaigning for certain things, and that's always a problem. I think that's inherent in any system. And uh, I think the best thing we can do is really try to enforce our anti-corruption laws as strongly as we can. And to make sure our regulators aren't captured entities. Mm-hmm. But that's actually one of those things that uh, speaks to perhaps a structural problem. Like, And this is just to give a preview into... For the listeners of like exactly what kind of permutation goes on in the legal minds of people like there have been legal scholars in the united states that say that perhaps considering the advanced nature of the world now and it's a very different world than the one that we lived in even just a hundred years ago it's it's vastly different and so perhaps the office of the president should be broken up between multiple people right like maybe and this is just me spitballing now Right, an economic, a foreign relations, and uh, you know, a general matters of local policy that do not involve those two, right? Because the fact that we expect one person to have a good handle over all of over everything, mm-hmm. it's ludicrous. It it is in a way, yeah, <laughs> totally agree. And even even with an intense power to delegate and to grant responsibility to these different agencies, he'll he's competing against like. A division of resources that existed before he even got there. Mm-hmm. And somehow we expect him to do better than essentially an entire legion of government workers, right? To be able to fight against a bureaucracy that existed and that he inherited from the previous person, which is one of those things, right? Like every time a new administration comes in, 
they will complain, oh, this was the fault of the previous administration, right? And that that is true for all presidents. Yes, pretty much. Right? And we expect that, no, you know, you're supposed to go in there and fix it. But no, actually, it's terribly, terribly difficult, right? Um, well, I, I want to be careful, though, because yeah. um, yeah, I agree with you. I want to be careful, though, now. That also doesn't excuse mistakes you will make. Yeah. Right? That it's, let's be clear about that. And then there are mistakes that have been made. Mm-hmm. And, and a certain level of accountability should be had, right? Mm-hmm. But yes, but certainly uh, to the point that the cha- a lot of the challenges are systemic uh, and, and institutional. Yes, certainly. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, and that's the thing though, like ultimately... Right, like a lot of the problems that the president might interface with, right? Like if he has a policy agenda, let's say, let's put aside the discussion of whether or not build, 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 for example, was a good or a bad thing, right? Like just to have a specific example that we can talk about and that we can focus on. Uh, you know, the president complained that Congress got in his way, right? And this is not me being defensive of the president. This is not me being an advocate for build, build, build. He said he needed more power. He did not get it. Right? That, that's just one example. Uh, is that a surprise? Right? Like considering the kinds of legislators that we consistently and repeatedly elect into office. Right? Like, and this is not me uh, overly chastising people, but, you know, you have to admit, like, if you have a pending corruption case against you, right? It should affect your chances of re-election, but it does not. Not in this country, no. All right. And then you ask the average member of the electorate why they voted for this person. Epogi kasi. Right? And that's sufficient. But there's a balance, if I may, there's a balance there though, right? Because um, I do have a, I, I, I actually kind of have a problem with, with, with saying things like, or let me rephrase. I've never been comfortable with saying things like, uh, so you, you ask a GP driver, ah, binoto ko siya kasi siya yung gusto ko eh. Kasi, uh, kasi malakas siya. Kasi matapang siya. The thing is, isn't that at the core of democracy though? Isn't that the point? Right? That everyone can have their own, dis- can have their own reason for voting the way they vote. Because consider the alternative, and I think that's the best way to, to describe the problem, right? Consider the alternative, right? That you limit the kinds of justifications that people have, then you've, then you've killed democracy, mm-hmm. right? And, and we've actually tried a lot of things where we limit who gets to decide who leads. Yes. Right? So, uh, you, I mean, not to sound too nerdy, you look at, for instance, the Holy Roman Empire, where elector counts were the only people who could choose the emperor. You limit them to certain... That naturally left a good 80% of the population left out from the political process, right? So we tried a lot of different things. Even even Athens, only males with property could vote, right? So, I don't know if it's accurate, but definitely women and children and slaves couldn't, right? So... Uh, so we've tried systems where we've limited the choice, and those turned out to be, you know, horrible, horrible right? Horrible failures. So, to an extent, 
the, I mean, it, it, it's kind of wrong, I, for lack of a better way to put it. It's kind of wrong to condemn. I, I, I would, I would not, let me put it this way. I would never condemn a person, an average Filipino saying, gusto ko siya kasi matapang siya. Whether he's right or wrong. Yeah. Gusto ko siya matali, dahil matalino siya. Whether he's right or wrong. Whether matalino nga ba yung binoto niya o hindi, right? Because that is kind of at the core of democracy, right? That everyone gets to choose based on whatever they think is right. So there's that. I would. I. I always. I've always had a problem with you know that kind of approach. Na people saying ah, kasi ganito kasi bumoto yung masa. Ah, kasi ganito. So, Sa masa, like that. Yeah, yeah, we can use the word. Yeah. Yeah. Always blaming the masa, but that's the point, right? Everyone should get a vote. Bakit? Dahil mas edukado ka, ikaw lang ang pwedeng pumili. Choice mo lang ang tama, right? Mm-hmm. If hindi relatable sa kaniyang pinili mo, can you blame that guy? Mm-hmm. Can you blame a farmer for not relating to to a lawyer who graduated from the top universities in the Philippines and the US? Mm-hmm. Right? You can't really blame that guy. That that doesn't mean anything to him. And you can't blame him for that, right? Yeah. So that's But on the other hand, the tension I have is on the other hand, Itang ina may corruption case yun eh. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, come on. He's, he's, he's being prosecuted for plunder. So what the hell? So, so on the other hand, there is that. Now, I honestly don't know what the right answer is. But I just did want to make that point. Now, we, I think we should really try to move away from just... I mean, every election you hear that. People blaming the masa for the way they vote. But that's kind of the point of a democracy. It's not perfect. Certainly, there are a lot of flaws, but we tried other things, and other things were worse. Maybe there's something better. I can't. I, it escapes me right now, but I hope there's something better. <laughs> no. So I guess I should be really clear with uh, what I mean when I'm uh, talking about like etang ina may kaso siya, bakit mo siya binoto. Like I'm not saying. I understand that there's intrinsic merit, right, to democracy, and I understand that. Um, in the absence of a motivating force, the like or an underlying principle, democracy is a powerful force by which our government continues to work. It's it's a it's a system that supplies uh, an objective frame of reference because at the very least we know who is in charge, right? That is that is the underlying assumption of democracy that makes it work beyond all of these other <coughs> systems that we know have not worked right and it has gotten to a point where democracy has provided to us this incredibly vibrant society with a lot of opportunities and so if i can segue very quickly right because we've talked a lot about government and the kind of work you can do in government gob um you left government work and went to the private sector why is that because you know the way you talk about it you get really Impassioned. You really like the work. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but you went somewhere else. Why did why 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 did you do that? <laughs> so there's no easy answer. Uh, actually, the, the the main the main reason I ended up going back to to, to you know a firm work is because I wanted to move back to Cebu. It's it's actually very very simple. The the real the core reason was actually very simple. I wanted to move back to Cebu, uh, quote unquote find a quieter life uh-huh like, when i when i moved back to manila a few years ago the 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 goal and the idea really was you know to get gain as much experience and as broad as an experience you know as, as broad as experience as, po- as possible 
And I felt like uh, after a few years of doing that, uh, I wanted, you know, something more stable, for lack of a better term, something quieter. Mm -hmm. So I moved back. And when I moved back, um, one of the things that almost in a way sort of just happened was the was the was the firm job and i was very very grateful that they even like considered <laughs> taking me on that's great so i was very so i was very grateful for that right so that's how i ended up back in a back in firm work and now in so you know in private practice so uh, w was it acquired your life going to a private law firm well quieter than being in you know being in the op so definitely uh, i love a lot quieter but Yeah, but I mean, you would understand this, right? Uh, firm work, firm life isn't is also isn't you know easy. Yeah, it's it's, it's really really challenging, right? And, and the hours can be really really long. Mm -hmm. But I learned a lot, like even in the short stint I had, yeah, definitely learned a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, there are three general trajectories for the benefit of the listeners uh, that a lawyer can take, right? And mm -hmm. feel free to add or subtract like a few different ones to these. I think broadly you're right. Broadly three. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so there's government, mm -hmm. private practice, and solo practice. Yep. Right? Pretty much. Uh, maybe in your own words, could you describe these paths and you know what, what, what might appeal to draw you into one of those directions? Hmm. All right, let's start with government. Well, government is appealing for two reasons. I mean, there's the... The inner megalomaniac. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the more selfish reason is stability. I mean, that's what, can, that's what government can offer. Right? Stability and the expectation of a decent retirement. Right? Or a pension. Excuse me. Right? That the decent pension at the end of it. Especially if you ended up in somewhere like the judiciary, which is a good retirement package, right? So that, I guess that's the appeal for staying in government. The the more selfish reason, right? At least, and of course, there's the more, uh, what what do you, how do you say? The more uh, unselfish, for lack of a better term, like a more unselfish reason would be, you know, the, the opportunity to serve and the opportunity to really try to make things better so that I mean can be appealing in that sense now with private practice firm right no, but firm life I think the key appeal is that if if that's really where you learn the most I think I mean I, I think a lot of people will disagree with me in this but uh, but personally my experience uh, I've been in two firms I've also been in government and I would say If you want to talk about the, the the you know the volume of knowledge you learn uh, in a short amount of time. in a short amount of time, also the variety of kinds of cases and transactions you'll handle, uh, nothing beats working for a you know for a law firm, even a reasonably sized firm. It doesn't even have to be one of the big ones, right? Even a reasonably sized firm, you'll learn a lot of different things in a very short time. Ar arguably, you'd learn more from a smaller firm than a bigger firm. Well, not too small, like a, a medium-sized firm. It has to be like big enough that there's variety, yeah. but also not too big where you end up not doing a whole lot, right? Because the downside about with, uh, if it's too small and you're new, 
is you can end up just doing like two types of cases again and again. Yeah. So, but uh, but like say for example, if it's land registration and uh, you know you get hundreds of cases of land registration that you know it like the back of your hand, and you operate in Cebu, right? Oh well, well, that's always good. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. I, 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 yeah, I'm not. That wasn't the criticism. Yeah. By the way, it was just like uh, in terms of evaluating experience. I mean, yeah, a hundred. You know, land. You gotta like to all to any. If there's a stu- law student listening, you gotta take land title seriously, because it is it is gonna be your bread and butter. I mean, I know it's a <laughs> it's a boring subject. <laughs> it is it is like oh god, going through land titles is agony, but. If any any lawsuit is listening, take it seriously because that is that will pay the bills, <laughs> in a, in, especially in the province. Especially if you're in yeah provincial practice, right? Maybe in Manila, not so much because everything's titled. <laughs> uh, but uh, wait, sorry. And uh, you were in the middle. You were talking about like mid-sized law firm and then solo practice. All right, solo practice. Well, th- I think the key appeal is for solo practice would be. Uh, yeah, you get your <laughs> you, you control your own time. It's the personal freedom. Gotcha. Right? So, so definitely the personal freedom uh, is is the key appeal. And so uh, I think solo practice is I wouldn't adv- again. I, I'm sure a lot of people disagree. Solo practice is good on your fourth or fifth year. I I don't think solo practice. Well, I guess it depends. My personal experience has been, I, I, I think going to solo practice in my fourth, fifth year has been useful. Let me put it that way. Because I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing people for, for choosing a path. No, that, that's not, I, I, don't want to, I don't want it to come out that way. Right? It's definitely not, right? Pers- uh, so uh, the way I'll put it is, deciding to go into solo practice, right, or doing my own thing at the fourth, fifth year turned out to be a great uh, decision because, you know, I had... I was able to spend at least a good four years learning from lawyers who know more and are better at the game than I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just, just to like bounce off, uh, that's one of the things that I personally struggle with because I actually jumped straight into the solo practice, right? And um, a lot of the reasons why I jumped straight into the solo practice are personal to me, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I had a business to take care of. I had opportunities that came my way which necessitated that I not be a subordinate in someone else's mm-hmm. law practice, yeah. right? And uh, like, this is really just a highlight that you know your lawyer's journey will, if you if you are a lawyer and you're listening to this, is going to differ. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's why I had to correct myself because there's no right way to do it. Yeah, right. I'm just talking from yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I mean, like you know, like uh, uh, Gob. I don't know if you'd agree, but perhaps you have batchmates in law school. Their first job out of law school was congressman or congresswoman. I mean, you know, that should really hammer it in. Like, yeah, definitely. There, there, I can top of my head, I can think of like three, <laughs> <laughs> right? Who are in, yeah? Who ended up in Congress? Yeah. Yeah, they never filed a pleading. <laughs> and they will still be called attorney congress person. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. And not knocking that. That's their journey, you know. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can't say that they're wrong for doing it that way. Definitely, you know? yeah. They had, they had certain opportunities available to them. And they, they seized those opportunities. They're playing house of cards right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. So, on the whole though, like, if you had to give advice to like a lawyer who was 
starting out like like give maybe a kind of mental model for how to approach the different kinds of opportunities that they might be confronted with after taking the oath and signing the role what might be some advice you'd give to the lawyer in the shoes you were in just five years ago think about where you'll learn the most in your first four years so in like i, I said to me what 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 happened was i learned the most working in and medium-sized firms right and and that was that turned out to be great for me now i'm not saying that's the only way to learn it right but i think one of the key considerations is when you're starting out maybe don't worry to if if you can at least if you're in a position to to make how much you'll make secondary make that secondary to learning now you know there definitely like and and it could be solo practice for all you know it, that could be the best thing for you right or maybe the, it, it could be government for you right it doesn't matter but i think the key motivation at, when you're starting out should be less about money and, and and more about trying to learn as much as you can and to equip yourself during the first so the first four years the so first four years is like basically loading up mm -hmm. For in your fifth year, that's when you go out and you now have a loaded, you know, you'll have a loaded gun, yeah, a, a well polished loaded gun that you can now use on your own, and then you can start thinking about to execute people, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> then you start thinking about okay, uh, I want to get married now, so I should start making more money, right? Well, and uh, you know, like uh, and the only thing I would add, I completely agree with you. The only thing I would add is that there's like a second layer of analysis that you put, and this is the less important layer of analysis, right? What, you know, because being a lawyer is not just a heuristic of how intelligent you are, right? It is a useful heuristic for also your relative status, right? Being able to take a break, take four years of law school, that speaks to a certain level of economic opportunity that might not be available in other people, because if that was the case, and that anyone could be a lawyer and they could do so, then everyone would be a lawyer. But no, that is not the case. And so maybe take stock of also of the opportunities that are available to you specifically. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. Given that's, your particular position. Yeah, that's definitely true. All right. And, you know, who knows? You know, you might have an interest, half as interesting of a journey as uh, Gob over <laughs> here has had, right? Uh, walking through the halls of power. <laughs> with, with, while having none of my own. <laughs> You know, just mainly walking through and... <laughs> uh, uh, so, now you're firmly embedded in the solo practice. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not close to going back to government or even a firm later on. But uh, but right now, definitely solo practice. Which is, uh, and interestingly, you know, with the whole pandemic, it, it turned out to be a great decision. Mm. Right, I got to stay at home, you know. I do do most of my work from home. Mm -hmm. So, but like, just for the benefit of a lawyer who might be beginning to undertake that journey, uh, what is the solo practice like? Well, I mean, of course, this is like strange times because we're still in the time of COVID as we record this. But what is it like for you? Mm, right. I'll have to qualify this though because uh, it it's not completely accurate. To, to say I'm a solo practice. I am technically affiliated. So I do have the luxury of having, you know, a regular 
a regular source of income, a regular job, regular day-to-day thing. So I'm currently working with an uh, am I allowed to say the organization? Yeah, of course, of course. So I'm currently working with Aquaways Coalition. It's an environmental advocacy org that works with, you know, on, on issues like plastic pollution and, uh, you know, uh, waste management and that sort of thing. So I am working with them. They're wonderful people doing wonderful work. And so I'm not fully solo practice. It's not accurate. So I do have that, 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 that uh, luxury. Because I think the key, I, 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 the reason I mentioned that is because the key challenge is before I was in Echoways, like the height of the, no, height of the pandemic, the key challenge when you're working alone is you really have to, you know, go out and, and try to find work, right? You, you can't sit around waiting. And because the luxury, I mean, as, as difficult as the life of a junior associate in a big firm is, the the advantage is the advantage the mind is that you don't have to go out looking for clients like that's not your job your job is to you know do the groundwork right and the clients that's what the partners do mm-hmm. so there's that but when you're working for yourself you're doing solo practice that's the key challenge like where is your next case going to come from mm-hmm. and so you have to work you also have to learn to work to build relationships or, mm-hmm. or develop existing ones. Uh, of course, you also have to do your job well so that your clients will say good things about you. And that's why it's important to be diligent. You know, that's actually something that I personally struggle with. Like, because there's that going far too off on the other end. Like, I have clients who come through. And with all due respect to our brother and sister lawyers, right? Uh, some of the experiences that they have with regard their clients... Uh, with regard with so what some of some of the experiences that my clients have with regard to lawyers that they might have retained previously is not great because that thought process of like where your next case is going yeah. to come from can become all consuming yes very and so, true. yeah and so sometimes our brother and sister lawyers do not give the level of diligence that is required and that may come from uh the difficulty of the circumstances, like the times that we're in, COVID is definitely a complication. But sometimes um, it is really a lack of diligence, right? That, uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> and to be perfectly frank, like you cannot stray too far off in the other direction where if just because you're a solo practitioner, a lawyer, and these clients came into your door, it's your obligation to give them your highest degree of diligence. Right. Um, I I try as much as possible to really make my clients feel that I care about their case. You know that, uh, and I I try to be as judicious as possible in the use of my time. When especially you know when I have to bill them for the time that I charge them, right? And it, it's one of those things. Like the last thing that I would like to do when presenting a comparison between life in a law firm and life in a solo practice is to give the impression that somehow just because you're in the solo practice it's all sunshine and rainbows and that's very much not not the case right and um, you should understand that as a lawyer you you have this level of diligence that you are obligated to provide in every instance Mm. right and just because you are granted greater facility greater uh, discretion 
being a solo practitioner, not being beholden to a senior partner, doesn't mean that you have any excuse to give less service. Yep. Right. Um, so, particularly since we've we've touched upon this, and I think I think you, Gob, you're particularly good to answer this question because you've you've touched all of them, right? All 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 these main paths in which a lawyer can go yeah, through, more or less, yeah. Right. So the law firm, government. And solo practice now, right? You've assumed, you've willingly assumed that burden. Uh, <laughs> uh, what is success for a lawyer? Right? What does it mean to be a successful lawyer? Wow, that's, uh, I got deep really quick. <laughs> uh, that's a difficult question to answer. Wait, if I can, I'll jump in with my own anecdote and then maybe that'll give you a bit All of right. time to think. So a friend of mine, uh, his his girlfriend was working in a law firm as like an administrative assistant, and you know, like I, I did one of my careless side comment type Rami things where I told him, "Oh, you're not worried that your girlfriend's gonna be working in a law firm because like young male lawyers, you know, uh, you know, they're very confident. They're gonna they're gonna flirt with her. They're gonna hit on her, right?" And, you know, he's like, ah, don't worry about it. We've been together for a couple of years. And then he messages me like a month or two later. And uh, it happened? No, no, no. It, it didn't quite happen. Oh, okay. Uh, did, or at least he didn't tell me it happened. But he asked me a question, which leads me to think that perhaps it happened. <laughs> yeah. He asked me the question, uh, what is a successful lawyer? How can you tell if a lawyer is successful? Right? And then I, I answered the first thing that came to my head. Right, just because I'm trying to give him a heuristic by which to gauge the success of a lawyer, right? Because he, you know, outside looking, and he is no, he knows nothing, right? I said a lawyer is determined entirely with reference to the kind of clients that he can attract. Right? That was my that was my impulse response. That was my knee jerk response. Right? If he can attract good, well playing clients, he's probably a successful lawyer. And, you know, implicitly trying to tell them these are the kind of guys you should be worried about in the law firm, right? Those junior associates who have no lawyers to their own name, don't worry about them, not even for a second, <laughs> right? And, but that, that's an interesting proposition because, like, is that really true? Like, is a lawyer really only worth the kind of clients he can attract? Yeah, I think it's a little broader than that. I mean, what if what if you're a prosecutor? Wait, no, but hey, man, like I, I was giving I was giving him a heuristic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Understand. For like, who, which lawyers to be worried about when approaching his girlfriend? Let me be very clear about that. I don't actually think that that's how a lawyer should gauge yeah, his right, own right. professional life. But go ahead. I think it comes down to. I mean, it's hard to measure success, right? It's nothing could be more subjective. Mm. Um. So I think it comes down to you really deciding what do you want to be in 10 years, right? I think it comes down to that. And, and your success is going to be a measure of how close you are to what you think you want to be, right? While at the same time recognizing that what you want to be can change, right? And so what your, 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 your understanding of success could be different. And that sounds very philosophical and 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 no. Let me be more specific. So for instance, I've seen both sides, right? I've seen people who've stayed in government and have committed to that and have risen to the ranks. And and I guess in that sense, you have a very objective measure of success in in in, in their rank, right? But then you have 
on the opposite spectrum, uh, lawyers I know, so I won't mention them by name, but I think you you, you may know who I'm referring to. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, you have a law, lawyers who have spent their lives in civil society, right, and have committed themselves to that. And yeah, you're talking about me. It's. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Go ahead, go ahead. Fighting for causes they believe in. And it's hard to say they're not successful just because they make, on its face, less money or or, or they don't have rank or privilege, right? So I think it comes down to really what, what do you want, what kind of lawyer do you want to be, right? And and really see and, and sort, of, sort of evaluate how close you are to that goal while at the same time recognizing that, the, you know, those goals could change, right? And uh, I don't think it ever really stops. You know, my my grandfather was a, is a lawyer, and when he re- he he was a private practitioner, he became a judge pretty late. Then after he retired, he went back to private practice, and he's still at it. He hasn't stopped, and he's he's ninety two, right? Thankfully, still lucid. So I mean. It doesn't really ever end, right? It doesn't really ever end. That that that, that becomes a, a crucial part of you, and you just keep doing it. And and how you measure your success comes down to whether or not you, you what goals you've set for yourself early in life, and how and how whether or not you've achieved them, and whether or not you've gained new goals or even changed some of them, right? So it comes down to that. I think ultimately you cannot apply an objective test to success yeah that feels like a cop-out but i think that's my answer <laughs> but you know i think it's i think it's a good answer because <laughs> like w- we need to be reminded of that because uh and this this might not be the case in cebu where what the practice looks like is very different but w- where i went to law school and where you went to law school for uh it's it's very much the case you know where people envision that you you go to uh these big Top tier law firms. You wear Gucci. You wear Prada. You wear you wear an expensive watch. Uh, you have a nice car, and you work long hours. And then, and but that isn't a conscious choice. Like people people seldom, right, choose that. But you know they go freshman year law school. They see oh that's the life I'm building towards. I guess this is it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and. It's not. It, it doesn't have to be that. And it usually takes people years to figure out. Mm-hmm. Right? And you could have chosen for yourself an entirely different path. One you never imagined. One that would have given you infinitely more fulfillment. But yet, you let reality make the choice for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that question speaks to, it doesn't need to be that way. It can be different. Yep. Right? And you just have to open your eyes, take off the blinders that law school and these strange series like suits and uh, other legal dramas give you that you know there are more options and that there are different ways yes definitely mm. and on that point having given us your very subjective interpretation <laughs> of uh, what a successful lawyer actually is gob in five years and this is usually the, the last question this is a question i used to cap the podcast with what will you be doing in five years Oh, that I actually can answer. Studying. Where? Like, no, not in generally studying. So it could, so still learning. Okay. That's, that's still learning. And 
in in a very concrete sense, I would also like to continue formally mm-hmm. studying. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably get a master's. If you had to name the field of law, what might that be? If it is a field of law at all, perhaps you'd take engineering. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I'd act, actually, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because yeah, I'd be very interested in in in, in economics. I'm, I'm very interested in economics. So that's something I want to take. And if I can get an LLM which is related to economics, then I'd probably do. Uh, I'd be interested in doing that. But I definitely would want to continue, you know, on a field that helps me, you know, continue building on my and and my environmental advocacy work. Uh-huh. So definitely not economics then, because you know, economics is the study of like. Uh, uh, distributing the scarce <laughs> resources, right? And so- right, no, but we can move towards a circular economy, right? Where we're it's where it's less extractive, and I think that should be the goal. I'm moralizing now. I apologize to the listeners, but there. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, we should be. So I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think, if anything, we should start orienting our economy in a way that's more sustainable. Yeah, it's actually one of those things where, uh, you know, particularly with the way that we understand economics now, like you understand how there is a real difference or a real shortfall in the ability of the uh, general public really to contemplate what is a better economically arranged society or a more economically well-arranged society. Because, like, say, for example, nuclear power. Like that's my that's my favorite example for something that could solve a lot of the problems that we currently face, but is not used to its fullest potential. Right? Nuclear power is one of the most amazing ways by which we can avoid dumping a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But we don't do it because we think Chernobyl, we think nuclear warfare, we <laughs> think nuclear fallout, we think nuclear winter. Right? And but if we think about like whether something is an economical. Uh, solution to the problems that we face that that might be one and you know like the fact that you want to venture out and to try to make your life about uh, finding those more economical solutions that that's impressive to me right and we need more people who's going to do that oh thank you (laughs) okay and thank you gob for coming on my podcast all right it was a pleasure